0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Grace Community. So glad you're here this morning. Happy Reformation Sunday. It's a big day when we remember Our heritage as Protestants who believe Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, to God's glory alone. And there's one more alone that I'm slipping up and missing right at the moment. But be here tonight. We're going to celebrate Reformation Sunday uh, by showing the Luther movie at 5.30. Actually, 5.30 this afternoon. So be here a little bit before 5.30. We're going to have snacks child care. This biographical film about Martin Luther's life is going to give you, I am certain, a deep appreciation for those who have gone uh, before us. And it will certainly cause us to leave this place with great gratitude for access to the Word, not just to be able to have the Word in our hands, but to be able to study it and learn and hear from God directly not having to go through a priest. So be here this afternoon, 5.30. That's all. Before we dive into today's message, I want to say something that's already been mentioned. Um, But I wanted to announce that the elders have decided to move just a little more deliberately than we had hoped to for proposing and affirming new elders and deacons, and as well for approving the budget. Well, actually, we're going to stick with November 29th for approving the budget, but we're not presenting it this morning. Several uh, unexpected events have caused us to push the schedule just a bit. So continue to pray for these important decisions about church leadership and the budget for next year. And as has already been mentioned, that will be our focus for our day of prayer and fasting this week. If you are Lord of the Rings fans, and it's clear that the world is divided into two groups of people, right? Those who love Lord of the Rings and those who wish they had never heard of Lord of the Rings. Uh, But you know the exchange that happens between Frodo and Gandalf several times in the story. Frodo, who is tasked with the impossible mission to save free creatures, all free creatures everywhere in Middle-earth, often lamented, I wish the ring had not come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf would say, so do all. That's as far as I better go. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. The first six chapters of Daniel provide a wonderful example of how one should live while in captivity, if anything about living in captivity can be wonderful, that is. We don't get to choose the time and place we will live, but we are responsible and blessed to live the right way. Will the Lord deliver us out of every evil? No. No. He has not promised to do so, but he has promised to always be with us until the end of the age. Sometimes, though, he does deliver in miraculous ways. Today's text, Daniel 6, describes one such example where we're going to read the familiar story of Daniel in the lion's den, or as Ralph Davis characterizes it, the night the lions were fasting, appropriate with... Day of prayer and fasting coming up, don't you think? That Look, that's funny to me. But the first sentence of his commentary on Daniel 6 is even funnier. He says, chapter 6 begins with a miracle. A squeaky clean politician. He's referring to Darius, who we understand to have been King Cyrus of Persia. The king who was so favorably disposed toward the Jewish men and women, that he allowed them to return to Jerusalem that they wanted to. Seventy years they've been in captivity. And Cyrus said, well, okay, you can go home if you want to. As for the first five chapters of Daniel, as with the first five chapters of Daniel, we're going to read the entire narrative this morning, which takes all of chapter 6 to tell. By the time we get to the end of the chapter... There will be several points of application to help us embrace faithful presence in the face of persecution, which is the title of today's message. Before we begin reading Daniel 6, though, I want to give you the preaching schedule for the next three weeks. If you're familiar with the structure of the prophecy of Daniel, you will know that there is a clean break, a sharp division between chapters 6 and 7. The first six chapters are filled with court tales, things that went on in the court with Daniel, his friends, things that were of official importance. The last six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, talk about prophecies and visions and it's much more mysterious and a lot more time needs to be given uh, to breaking those down. So I've been able to get through each chapter in these first six weeks in one Sunday but I have no such confidence about chapters 7 through 12. Therefore it seems best to wait until the first of the year to resume our study in Daniel. That doesn't mean, however, that we're going to take a break from eschatology or the topic of eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Next week will be a communion sermon from Isaiah 53, and you heard both of those right, a communion sermon from Isaiah 53, after which on November 12th our text will be Psalm 122 where we are commanded by Yahweh through David to pray for the peace or the shalom of Israel. Now, does this mean to pray for the current nation of Israel or to pray for Jewish men and women to come to Christ or to pray for the followers of Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile? That question can only be answered fully after this question. Who were God's chosen people today? Would they be Jewish men and women as they were known in the Old Testament as The chosen people of God? Or does the New Testament teach, especially in Romans 9 and Galatians 3, that all believers are now Abraham's children and that God's promises in the Old Testament to his his people have been transferred to the church in the New Testament? That is November 12th. The answer is complex, but we will begin to explore this topic in a couple of weeks. On November 19th, we're going to think about the thousand-year period known as the millennium. The text will be Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. So what are you? Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, dispensational? You have no idea who's in that category? Uh, Those terms might not mean much to you now. And even though it'll take far more than one sermon to fully address the subject, we will get our toes in the water on November 19th, Lord willing. And even though the study in the book of Revelation comes after our study in Daniel, um, an understanding of the different beliefs about the millennium or that 1,000-year period in Revelation 20, along with the truth we're going to think about from Psalm 122. All of this is going to very much inform our study in the last half of Daniel's prophecy. So don't think about it as a break from Daniel so much as an excursus or an eschatological excursus where we're going to take in more information that will enhance our study once we get to 2024. 2024. So we're going to begin our time this morning in Daniel 6 by reading the first 10 verses of the chapter. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is being read, so if you would please stand and we will read together. I will read, but read in in your mind and in your heart. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them were three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps must give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned, now think about this. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps praised the Lord and said, this is a grand idea. No, no, wait, that's, I missed that. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find ground. There was no ground or complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, and may it be said of us, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and Thetraim came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. And whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king established the injunction and signed the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, and be seated. Well, as we begin Daniel chapter 6, we find ourselves in the early years, or in the early months, actually, of the rule of the Persian Empire under King Cyrus, who is often called Darius and Daniel. Uh, we're going to see at the end of the, ch- of the chapter that these names are, are, seem to be interchangeable. Now we know that Daniel was deported from Jerusalem in 605 BC. And we know that Cyrus arrived in Babylon on, are you ready for this, October 29th. 539 B.C. In other words, 2,562 years ago to this day. Well, if the records are accurate, that is. Daniel must have been a young teenager when he was taken as a slave to Babylon. And by now, he was surely in his 80s, likely his mid to upper 80s. Still, though, serving the Lord, serving the kingdom... Cyrus, no doubt, met with the leading officials of the city, of whom Daniel was one. (laughs) And the king was looking for someone with integrity, someone who would protect the financial interest of the empire. You know how easy it is for people to take a little from here and a little from there. Nobody will miss it, right? Well, Well, Cyrus wanted someone who would protect the financial interest of the burgeoning Persian Empire. Daniel made a strong impression on the king. And so he had in, in his mind to set Daniel over Babylon. Again, that is mind-blowing when you think about it. A Jewish slave who is an old man, and yet so faithful, so full of integrity, that the king is going to set him over that portion of the empire anyway. <clears throat> Cyrus' decision did not sit well with the other officials and drove them, which drove them to find a scandal to take Daniel down. They hired the finest private investigators that money could buy. But the investigation ended where it began, with nothing. (coughs) There was no fault in Daniel that could be found and described at all. They were going to have to concoct a plan to trap him. But since Daniel could not be corrupted so easily, they also had to lay a trap for Cyrus to bring a legitimate legal claim against Daniel. It's not that they wanted to ruin Daniel's reputation. They wanted him dead. They wanted him completely off the scene. The plan to make a law that disallowed any worship other than to Cyrus, the king, likely flattered him. He's probably thinking, yeah, you know, this is probably a good thing. It solidifies allegiance to me. Make sure that everybody understands who's the boss. Plus, I'll be a good king, which he was, relatively good emperor Cyrus. (laughs) I'll be a good king, and I think I can win the hearts of the people. And so, he signed the irrevocable decree. Daniel knew about the order not to pray to any other god than Darius. But Daniel's prayer life was both semi-public and consistent. For one month, though, think of all the ways that Daniel could have said, okay, look, let's just get past this month. I'm not going to pray by the window. I'm going to go into the... Uh, my bathroom and pray. <clears throat> I, I'm going to go somewhere else and pray. Or look, I can just hold off for a month. I, I mean, I'm, I'm serving the Lord here in Babylon, and wouldn't it be better to serve the Lord than to be thrown into this trap? I mean, you surely you're going to be able to do more for the Lord if you haven't been eaten by lions. He could have. But you know what Daniel did. 10 again. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. This is just as Solomon had instructed the people to do, pray toward Jerusalem, toward the temple. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Look, this plot wouldn't have worked had Daniel been hit and miss in his worship. It's not that he began praying three times a day by the window, but rather he continued doing what he had done for 70 years. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, Yes, it's absolutely right. The, the thing stands according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah. So no, wait a minute. You know, that slave, that Jew boy, Daniel, he pays no attention to you, old king. Or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day in your face. Now, you might expect that Cyrus would have been furious with Daniel, much like Nebuchadnezzar had been furious with Daniel's three friends when they refused to worship the statue of gold. But not this king. Not this time. Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Everything else, all the empire business, set aside. Don't hold all my calls. I've got to find a way to free Daniel. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that this is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Now, look, Cyrus is really different from Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't care that Daniel worshiped Yahweh, much like the emperors of Rome wouldn't care if Christians worshipped Jesus it's just that you have to worship the king as well and in this case Cyrus had been tricked into signing a decree Daniel had no choice to do what he had to do but neither did Cyrus Cyrus decision to sign the decree had been far more political than religious and he was now officially distressed. Verse 16. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. So why is Cyrus going to do this? Because he would lose face if he didn't. He could not afford not to sign the decree or to make sure that that Daniel was fed to the lions. He couldn't lose face, so he was forced. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. And sleep fled from him then at the break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions as he came near to the den where daniel was he cried out in a tone of anguish the king declared to daniel oh daniel servant of the living god has your god whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lion's Look, does all of this securing with official seals remind you of anything? Like Jesus' tomb, perhaps? Cyrus had deep affection for Daniel, and he was impressed enough with Daniel to be impressed with his God. And somehow he had hope that Daniel had survived. Don't you know he was thrilled to hear Daniel's voice? Verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. There's an important question and an important observation to be made from verses 21 and 22. First, the question, who was the angel that came to Daniel? I mean, both Gabriel and Michael, Michael the archangel, are going to show up Later in the book of Daniel, they're going to make an appearance. And while it could have been one of these two, it would have, he would have most likely been uh, named. It also, though, could have been the pre-incarnate Christ. It could have been Jesus with Daniel. Now, neither Daniel nor his friends would have understood this. But as we look back at the book of Daniel from our side of the resurrection, this side of Jesus' resurrection... There is so much that we see that they did not see. And we find Jesus everywhere in Daniel. He is the stone. Remember the cornerstone in Daniel that, Daniel 2 that smashes all the earthly kingdoms on the last day. He is the fourth man in the fire in Daniel 3. He's the son of man in Daniel 7. He is the anointed one or the Messiah in Daniel 9. Could he be the angel that came and shut the mouths of the lions in Daniel 6? I don't think it's much of a stretch at all. I mean, he could have been taming the lions in the same way that he tamed a donkey to ride for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So the observation from verse 22 is that it is possible to worship God and at the same time to honor God. The political leaders of the day. This is a hard one for all of us. And it comes down to worship. If it comes down to worshiping one or the other, there is no choice. Daniel's three friends were persecuted for what they refused to do. While Daniel was persecuted for doing what he had committed to do for God. Cyrus was delighted to bring Daniel out of the den. But he didn't stop there. (laughs) Picking up in verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And then verse 24. And the king commanded... So so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God, now 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, (laughs) they, their children, and their wives. And before they had reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Now, if we were in Judah, children and spouses would not have died for the sins of the men uh, unless they had participated in, which is what we must assume about Achan and his family uh, in the little town of Ai, or right outside the town of Ai, or Jericho, I mean. But this was not Judah. Daniel's survival would have surely been interpreted As proof of innocence, and Daniel was most certainly innocent. As is so often the case, God turns the tables on those who mess with his people. Because you remember from a few weeks ago, to mess with God's people is to mess with God. Now, that's not the attitude any of us are supposed to have. But when we entrust our lives into the hands of a God who loves us deeply, deeply enough to send Jesus to die for us, well, we can know that he's going to do the right thing. I have often thought about how when God delivers his children from persecution or illness or some dire circumstance, and he does so in a miraculous way, say someone has stage four cancer, and the Lord heals that person, after they go into the hospital or into hospice, planning to die. If the Lord were to heal that person, it would be a beautiful picture of what it's going to be like for eternity. But it's only a picture, and it doesn't happen often. But when it happens, it's a big deal. But I also picked up reading um, this week in preparation for this sermon in the commentaries, how it's also... A sign of eternal judgment when God turns the tables and judges those who sought to put Christians to death. Now, he's merciful many times, as in the case of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had um, Stephen stoned to death, and God saved him anyway. In fact, he used that circumstance to save Stephen, to get his mind and his heart going. But God's ways are seen Sometimes in miniature here, but they're pointing to a day where the blessings are eternal and the judgment is eternal. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 25, we're told, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in my, all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and to fear before the God of Daniel. <clears throat> For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power Of the lions. This is a proclamation that we should not take lightly. This is the emperor over all the portion of the earth where he lived. Cyrus turned out to be a highly respected emperor. And although he backed away from his decision to make Daniel the ruler over Babylon, He praised Daniel's God, which was far better in Daniel's mind anyway. No indication. The same is with Nebuchadnezzar. We can't know whether he came to, to trust Christ or not. We don't know. I don't see any reason to think that he did more for Nebuchadnezzar than for Cyrus. Nonetheless, because of Daniel's faithful presence in Babylon... And and the favor of the king that was upon him. He had at least two more good years in the land. As we will see as we continue in Daniel. Verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. And the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The way this verse is written in Aramaic. It could well be written during the reign of Darius. That is the reign of of Cyrus the Persian, which is why I keep using the names interchangeably. Well, as it has been uh, for every one of these first six chapters of Daniel, there is much application with very little time to ponder it. So I'm going to challenge you this week to find New Testament verses to affirm these five principles of application, beginning with a believer's primary allegiance is always... To Jesus it's not enough to say that we follow God we follow Jesus he is the one who gave his all for us going to the cross as a completely innocent man to die for our sins 100% God 100% man dying in our place When Peter and John were told to shut it with their preaching about Jesus, they simply said, we must obey God rather than men. Now, that didn't give them license to respond to cultural and political spite with equal religious hatred. Faithful presence is not about alienating others. It's about giving them reasons to look beyond us to Jesus, to look to the cross. And that leads to the second point. A believer's allegiance to Jesus should make him or her the best citizen, worker, spouse, parent, fill in the blank, possible. As it was in Daniel's case. If others find fault with us, let it be because of our worship Our worship of Jesus, the gospel message is offensive enough, but do not offend others with your words or actions. Your allegiance to Jesus should make you the best person on the scene, not the most annoying person on the scene. Third, your relationship with God will often rub unbelievers the wrong way. You have nothing to do. Maybe you haven't given a word of witness, but just your lifestyle and your faith in Christ will rub people the wrong way. Serve God anyway. Never take a break from worship. I'm not sure why it is a surprise to us when people don't like our commitment to the Lord. Jesus said it would be this way. If they hate you, know (laughs) that they hated me first. Not pleasant, but it's at least an explanation. There is no way to avoid others' disappointment with your commitment to Jesus. When you first get saved, you think everybody wants to hear this. And then you realize very few people want to hear this, except for other Christians. worship the Lord anyway. Fourth, Jesus will always be with you even in persecution. No, especially in persecution. Look, there are many examples of this in Scripture. In addition to twice in the book of Daniel, in Acts 7, we find Deacon Stephen being stoned to death and just Before the persecution began, he looked into the heavens and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, what is Jesus' posture in heaven right now? He's sitting, right? He's sitting by the hand of the Father. But when Stephen was in trouble, Jesus stood up to welcome him home. We're told in Acts 23... That Jesus visited Paul in prison in Jerusalem and stood with him. This is consistent with the Lord's promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Last, deliverance from evil is always an opportunity to point to God's grace. Deliverance of any kind is always an opportunity to point to God's grace, but especially from evil. Daniel credited the Lord for his deliverance, not some special goodness or power that he possessed. You know, if you're watching Harry Potter, if if Daniel were in a Harry Potter story, when Darius removed the stone, he might have found Daniel going... Not here. He said, my Lord, my God did this. He sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions. I think he sent Jesus to shut the mouths of the lions. I don't know that for sure. In our day, we could say this point this way. Deliverance from evil is always an opportunity to point to the gospel. We should never point to ourselves as if there is some goodness in us that ought to attract people. It's not our good works or church attendance or even our baptism that saves us. It's none of those things. You cannot be good enough to earn your way to heaven. You may think it arrogant when people say, if, 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 if one is asked, are you sure that you're saved? For them to say, oh, absolutely. You may think that is arrogant. But what you're not hearing is, and it's not based on me, I'm as bad a person as I know. My hope is based on what Jesus did on the cross for me. That's my only hope. I could never, I know what I deserved, deserved, but he saved me when he went to the cross as a substitute for my sins. Look, if you have been depending on yourself or anyone else or anything else besides Jesus for your salvation. Now, I'm not talking about about just knowing about Jesus, knowing the lingo, knowing what you're supposed to say. But if you have never had an encounter with him where you have said, all my hope is in you, even if you grew up knowing the gospel, even if you never remember a time you weren't saved, surely there's some time when you say, Lord, you're my only hope, Jesus. You're my only hope. Not my good works. And call out in repentance, confessing your sins. And then putting your trust in the one who could righteously die as a substitute. You and your spouse, you and your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you and your brother or sister, your best friend. You get to heaven and the Lord pronounces judgment on your friend And you say, oh, I'll take his place. I'll take her place. He's like, I'm sorry. You've got to die for your own sins. But Jesus, when he died, it counted. It meant something. And when we put our trust in him, we become his. And when the Lord delivers us, look, saved from death, By cancer, saved from death in a time of persecution, that's good stuff. But it's nothing compared to saved from hell because you're saved by Jesus. So that's the question. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Now if you've trusted Jesus as your savior and you've tried to confirm that 5000 ever how many years we are removed from you know this day October 29th in 539 BC I'm going to be upset with you if you're doubting yourself this is not this not for you don't be doubting your salvation cuz it's not a, it's not about you see that's what Daniel understood it's about Jesus, it's about him, the one who shut the mouths of the lions and kept him from judgment. The same way, he'll keep you from judgment. If you don't know him, call out to him now. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads in prayer. if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, maybe you've known the Lord is wanting to do something big in your heart, but you've just not understood what it is, can't make sense of it or put words to it, maybe would you be willing just in your heart, if you are ready, and don't wait if you're ready, don't jump in if you're not, but if you're ready, would you just pray something like this in your heart, Dear Lord, I acknowledge you as the great and holy God of the universe. I know that you created me. And I know that I am a sinner. Not just because I sinned, I was born a sinner. And I'm so sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. Lord, I know that the only hope of forgiveness is in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for me. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me now. I need you. I pledge my life, my whole life, to you. Thank you. dot org.